turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. We made it through another week. I know that's hard to believe, but this is another Friday here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We are completing our next to last week of school, and and next week all the kids go home and things will be quiet again. I hope all is going well with you. Hey, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, whatever's on your heart, you need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and as always I want to remind you if you're driving in your car the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else will be hands free Hey, uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel San Antonio I am going to be doing, I think, the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 22. Uh, I should have only two more studies tonight and then the following Friday in the book of Revelation, and we will be done. Um, So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. You can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. And we are back in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and they walk right into an argument going on at the bottom of the hill. Isn't it always true you have these mountaintop experiences and you always got to come back to earth? Well, that's what happens in Mark chapter 9, and that's what we're going to be teaching on Sunday here at the church. Wherever it is that you go to church, I pray that you're going there to serve, to be used by God, praying for some divine appointments and opportunities to be a blessing to someone else rather than focus on you being blessed, you be a blessing, and then God will take care of blessing you. I can promise you that. Well, let's get to some questions while we are waiting for any phone calls that come today. This first one is from Priscilla from our email inbox. She says, my friend asked me, why did God allow Adam to sin? And before that, why did he allow Satan to tempt them? If God is God, couldn't he have prevented the temptation? Now we all have to suffer. Uh, This is Priscilla again. She is very intelligent and thinks with an Asian twist. I'm not sure what that is, Priscilla. but And then she says, however, she says she has come to love Jesus. Please add scriptures. Pray for her and for me to have the wisdom to answer her. This friend is growing me. I, I would imagine Priscilla means causing her to grow. And that's really good, Priscilla. You know, I have a little bit of a problem. People say, well, what about this? And give me scriptures. Uh, the whole Bible is the story. The whole Bible is is um, the answers, where you're going to find the answers. It's not just dueling Bible verses. 
Um, you got to know who Jesus is. And the way to do that, Priscilla, is to know the word. So let this girl, uh, this friend of yours, continue to cause you to grow by, by causing you to dig into the word. Um, the question, why did God allow Adam to sin? And why did he allow Satan to tempt them? The answer to that is very straightforward. Um, God never forces anybody to love him. It's that simple. Uh, we can go all the way back to when Satan fell. Uh, God created the angel. Satan was the most beautiful angel. His name was Lucifer. And and yet even the angels had to choose of their own free will. And remember, angels and humans alike, we have free will. Um, we had to choose to serve God. It wouldn't be love if God would have said to Adam, okay, Adam, don't do this, uh, and then prevented Adam from having a meaningful choice. And the answer, Priscilla, is that everybody has to choose. God won't force anybody to love him. God won't force anybody to serve him. He tells us that he loves us. He proves that he loves us. And then he tells us the consequences if we don't and the blessings if we do. But that's been the story of human history from Adam and Eve forward. We all have to make a choice and it wouldn't be love at all if they had no choice in the matter. Of course, God wants us to love him. He wants us to make the right choices. But love would be meaningless, Priscilla, if in fact there was no choice. So God gave the enemy the opportunity to tempt Eve first by putting a tree in the garden. And he said, all these are the trees that I give you. By the way, tonight in Revelation chapter 22, we're going to be talking about another tree. In the heavenly garden, uh, the tree of life, they had access, Adam and Eve did, to that tree of life. But God says, in this beautiful garden, I've given you everything here is yours for food. Everything is yours. But do not eat from one tree. Think about this for a moment, Priscilla. The entire garden was magnificent. It was self-supporting. Uh, it was abundant. Imagine what the fruit must have tasted like, the vegetables. But God had to put one tree in the garden to make the choice meaningful. So you can have all these other trees, but one tree. Don't eat from that tree or you will surely die. So he warned them. He gave them all the information they needed. And of course, that was the tree of temptation. I like to call it the tree of choice. And every human being who has ever lived has had to make that same choice. And apart from that choice... Love would be without meaning at all. You know, I think sometimes people take, and, and if your friend is a new Christian and she's come to love Jesus, that's wonderful. But I think sometimes we just think, well, wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it be better if God just didn't allow any temptation? But, but you see, then our choice to love him would not be uh, a choice at all. It would be coerced. It would be forced. And then, as I said, it would be meaningless. So uh, I'm really grateful your friend has come to love Jesus. You keep telling her about him. But over and over and over through the scriptures, this idea of choice matters to God. All we have to do is believe. We don't have to do anything else. Salvation is a free gift. All we have to do is accept that, that free gift. But then we've got to make a choice, literally, Priscilla, every single day to serve God or to serve self. Do I want to do what makes me happy? Or do I want to do what makes him happy? At the end of Mark chapter 8, do you want some scripture, Priscilla? Read uh, the end of Mark chapter 8 where Jesus says, To be my disciple, you must pick up your cross. Or, uh, let me go back one step. You must deny yourself. That's putting Jesus ahead of you. you got to pick up your cross. Luke adds the word daily, which means you got to die to your flesh every day. And follow him. And that's the choice that we get to make every single day. But to have a world where there was no choice is unfortunately uh, a world uh, where love would be without any meaning at all. Priscilla, thank you. And thank you for witnessing to your friend. And please tell her that uh, I'll be praying for her. I pray that she even falls more in love with Jesus than, than she does now. Let's go to our friend Ruben from Seguin in line one. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. 
God bless you, Pastor Ron. It is always always a pleasure to hear your voice and just to know that I have someone who loves me, even though he hasn't even met me. And I know that a lot of people are praying for me through him, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> My pleasure, Ruben. And you and you know what, Ruben? I I, uh, I I may not have seen you face to face, but I know more about you than I know more about most most people. So this is a good deal we got going on here. It is. This is a great deal, and I know that when God heals me or when God gives me the opportunity to get there. Uh, I know it's going to be something special. I can't wait for it. But until then, I'm just going to continue doing this and getting my insight and growing and growing and growing because uh, here's a little, uh, for those of you who are listening right now and have never heard Pastor Ron, if I may, Pastor Ron, uh, if I may say, <laughs> uh, if you've never heard Pastor Ron and today's your first day and you're going through something and, and, and you're searching for answers and you just you just can't seem to find them, listen to this man. This man knows what he's saying. It is sound, sound word. It is sound word. It is food for your heart, for your spirit, because believe me, the past 10 years, he knows what I've been going through and I have come so far. And I know that. I know that without a shadow of doubt that I have come so far uh, through the grace of God and God using Pastor Ron. And I thank God for allowing us to 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 connect when we connected. So uh, I just want to throw that out there to anybody who's listening and is just going through something just to <laughs> give this man a chance. You know? Uh, humility, humility demands I cut you off, Ruben. <laughs> That's enough of talking about me. What's up? Um, I have a question. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews twelve. Uh, we're in eighteen and twenty-two. It's talking about mountains. The second mountain. I know it's talking about Mount Zion, but what is the first mountain it's referring to? So, verse 18 in Hebrews chapter 12? Uh, yes, Hebrews 12, 18, yes. Okay, let me get there really quickly. Okay, I'm there. Let me find it. I'll read it, and then we'll... Um, There it is. I can't. There. Uh, I can't find verse eighteen. Hold on, just a minute. I'm getting there. I know dead air is really bad, but um, I can't see, and it takes me a little bit of time. Okay, verse eighteen says, "You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire." Now, uh, a couple of things. This is the first mountain, and this is the mountain that we're spared from, Reuben. Um, it's a real mountain, um, and Israel, of course, came to Mount Sinai, the mountain of law, and and the mountain basically says to us, keep the law and you're okay, break the law and you're condemned. Um, the problem is nobody here has ever kept the law. So this first mountain is a mountain that is burning with fire because it speaks of condemnation. Break one part of the law and you're guilty of breaking it all. So uh, th this is a law, a mountain that leads to death. And you remember when the Israelites came to that mountain and they heard the, the voice of God, they didn't hear the details like Moses did, but it was shaking and it was, it was terrifying. And eventually they said, uh, we, we don't want to go there. You go talk to him and then come to us. So this is a mountain that ought to terrify every single one of us because this is the basis upon which every single human being is going to be judged apart from believing in Jesus Christ. It says it was a mountain that was consumed by darkness and gloom and storm. You'll remember the Mount Sinai was covered with thick black smoke as the mountain trembled and that's why it was uh, so gloomy. You know, Moses had to sort of seal off the mountain and told them not to go uh, any farther, he put up a fence 
uh, to cut off access, and anyone caught trespassing, of course, would have died. Well, that's what it's like when we try to approach God on uh, on the basis of whether or not we keep the law. You know, Reuben, and I know this isn't what you you, you mean and, and you understand differently, but uh, there's just a lot of people uh, in our day and age that think, well, I'm a good person. I do more good things than bad things. This is the mountain all those people are going to have to go to. And it's a mountain that requires absolute perfection. And they just didn't want to do it. So that's the first mountain. Um, um, they, terif- they, they trembled uh, in fear. The second mountain uh, is uh, this glorious mountain. Verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You know, Sinai, uh, the first mountain, resulted in guilt leading to death. But Zion, on the other hand, is a city of life. It's the home of the living God. Sinai, you remember, was in a desert. Uh, well, Zion is a literal city in heaven. It's bountiful and abundant. Um, and uh, the third uh, contrast here, the, the first mountain was was horrible, uh, gloom um, and doom. Uh, but, but this is a mountain that the rest of the verse says, you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So when you come to this mountain, and this is the mountain of life, this is coming to Jesus on our way to heaven, Reuben. Um, this is a joyful assembly. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful scene. The myriads of angels, an innumerable number, are referred to many times in scriptures. Uh, these are the angels that Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And that's the mountain that we've come to. It's also, we're told, and I'm going to go one verse beyond there, Reuben, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written uh, in heaven. Remember on Sinai, only Moses could approach God. But with this mountain, the second mountain, all of us throughout history who have believed in Jesus Christ by faith have been given access to this mountain and our names are written in the book of life. So that, I hope, is uh, what you're looking for, Reuben. Uh, We want to always remember those contrasts. Ruben, good to hear from you as always, and not just because you like me and say good things about me. Thanks very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, why doesn't your youth groups do opening games with the kids? Don't you think that would attract the kids more? My son went to your middle school class, and my daughter attended the high school group. When I asked him how it went, I was surprised to hear that there wasn't anything engaging for them to do. We come from a church that had fun activities to do with the youth, and it was very healthy. Why doesn't your church do things like that? I'm going to keep bringing my kids because they said the pastors were nice, but I'm worried my kids aren't getting all they could out of the youth groups. I would appreciate your thoughts on the matter. Um, um, you know, Pastor Chris and Pastor Matthew are my high school um, and junior high school pastors. And their job, uh, Anonymous, is to teach your kids the Word of God. That's all. Uh, we're not the cool youth group. If you want a cool youth group with air hockey games and, and beanbag chairs and uh, ping pong and all that kind of stuff, uh, that's not what church is about. We're trying to prepare your kids for a world that's trying to destroy them. And here's what's going to happen to your kids as they are listening to the word being taught. Life is going to come into their bodies. You're not a Christian because you go to church. You're a Christian because you're born again. And at the cool youth groups, you know, they're not going to hear they have to be born again. Uh, You know, we've got your kids for maybe an hour and 15 or 20 minutes on a Sunday to take any of that time Away from the word of God would be to literally be stealing from your children. And our kids, from the time, and this this isn't the junior high and high schoolers, all the way back into the, the toddler room, from the very beginning, the kids that come here are getting the word of God. We're teaching it verse by verse. Uh, we're making it real in their life. And and what you're going to find is you're going to find kids that really love Jesus instead of kids that just have fun at church. 
So Anonymous, I, I, I know that we think we've got to engage kids. But what we're here to do is to introduce your kids to Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that matters. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes with this, and I don't want anybody to take this personally. But here's, here's what we have to understand as parents. We are living in a world that's teaching your kids that there's no objective truth. A world that's teaching your kids that it's okay to be uh, active and deviant sexual behavior. Uh, your kids are being taught that boys can be girls and girls can be boys. They're being taught, erroneously I would add, about climate change. They're not being taught what they need to know. Solomon wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we want to prepare your kids for a world that they're engaged in online. Those little dumb computers that they're carrying around in their uh, purses and pockets that parents won't take away from them. Uh, They're being recruited. They're being lied to by the world that we live in. And since most parents aren't actively engaged in, in, in what their kids are involved with online, um, we're giving them Jesus. Because your kids will not be able to resist sin, period. They will not be able to resist sin unless the Word of God has hit home and penetrated their heart. They must be born again. And I am the uncoolest pastor in the whole world. And I remember when the Lord was raising up these two young men. And by the way, I've known them both their whole lives. They've heard more of me than probably anybody should have to in a lifetime. But the first thing I told them is, look, I don't want the coolest church. I don't want to be the the, the place where the kids go because it's cool, because it's fun. And I don't want the pastors to be hip or relevant. I want them to be committed to teaching the Word of God. And that's the only thing that matters. And believe me, the Holy Spirit will engage them. And that's the purpose of church. It's almost offensive to hear that we need to entertain kids. It's, It's diminishing their intellectual capacity. It's diminishing uh, their their ability to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, it, it ought to be considered insulting to entertain the kids. So here's what they're going to do at Calvary Chapel. They're going to worship God. They're going to learn from the word of God. And if our track record is any indication what that's going to result in is that they're going to grow up and be young men and young women who really love Jesus. So when somebody tries to get them to have sex um, before they're married, when somebody tries to get them to, to take drugs or to get them to do any of the crazy things out there in this world, they're going to say, no, I can't do that. I love Jesus too much to do that. And that's really what we're here to do with your children. We want them in heaven. And that's the only thing that matters. And anonymous, they don't go to heaven because they grew up in a church or in a in a Christian home. I'm trying to prepare these kids. We're trying to prepare these kids for that moment when you send them to university or they go out to get a job and the people there try to convince them that anything that they want to do is okay. It doesn't really matter. Did God really say... Uh, You go to university, they're going to try their best to steal their faith. We're trying to give them such a solid foundation in the faith that nobody can steal it away from them. So uh, we're not going to engage them with fun. We're going to engage them with Jesus. Um, You know, uh, I think one thing, we we have a junior high and high school Monday night Bible study. Uh, We also have the men and the women studies at the same time. But a cool church is a topic of discussion um, uh, that both of our, our pastors, youth, junior and high school pastors, uh, engage in on Monday nights. And they do that on a regular basis uh, because they're challenging kids to get into the Word. So I hope that makes sense to you. 
we love your kids too much to be cool. So I hope that's enough. Thank you for the question. We're now inside of three minutes. i got to do a quick one. Um, here's an anonymous one. Uh, my mother is suffering a lot with cancer. Is it okay to ask God to take her? Of course it is anonymous. Now, obviously, only God has the power of life and death. And we can't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know why God keeps some people around, and it appears that they're suffering. But God is always at work in people's lives. Uh, I've been in both situations where I've asked God to keep somebody who was suffering a great deal around because they weren't saved. Lord, keep them here as as long as it takes. Nothing is nothing is important. Not even being physically well is as important as being spiritually right with God. And then others who were suffering, and I, I know they were going to heaven, and I would say, Jesus, please take a moment quietly and peacefully. And uh, so, yes, it is. It is perfectly okay to ask God to take her, and I'm sorry for the pain. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life, and we'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show. We've got 30 minutes to hear your wisdom. We've got Cindy holding on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. You know, Hi, I'm, Cindy. I'm Hi, you know what? I'm still on my wedding banquet question, which I asked. It's been over a week ago. This week, I don't know what happened. I woke up today and thought it was Thursday, and to my surprise, it's Friday. So anyways, <laughs> I've been thinking about this. Now, from what I understand, everybody who has died, has gone to heaven, will be at the at the wedding, at the at the banquet, the wedding banquet, and then mm-hmm. what I'm wondering is after the wedding banquet, I think it's isn't it over in like seven years, and then it's the tribulation. But then, where my question now is, when do we get married? When when is the marriage? Is, is it like when the when New Jerusalem comes down? You know, in chapter twenty one of Revelation. So I'll get off the phone and let you continue to answer my question. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, Cindy. Uh, no, we get married when, as soon as we go to Jesus. The minute we stand before Jesus, we're married. The wedding banquet is the celebration. Um, now, now we, we, we can't think too linear about this because um, there's a lot of Jewish custom here. And, and th- this is symbolism. It's not going to be like one long seven-year party. Uh, it's going to be a celebration. It's going to be the, the beginning of our life. Um, in Christ, with Christ, uh, that that moment, I'm going to talk about it briefly tonight when we're going to see his face. And that moment happens, and there won't be a wedding ceremony. It will just be Jesus uh, marrying us when we see him. And then the wedding banquet uh, is that seven-year period of time. It'll seem like seven seconds to us, but it's that seven-year period of time while on the earth, everything is literally going to hell. Uh, the Great Tribulation uh, has begun. Um, the world is being judged. The Great Tribulation is God's wrath poured out on mankind for rejecting him. Um, we will be in heaven with Jesus celebrating. Think about the contrast. While, while this world is being destroyed, while people are, are dying uh, in such numbers that it's, it's impossible for us to understand um, the, the the pain and the, the, the mourning that will be going on, uh, but also the fear uh, and, and the people will be trying to, to preserve their lives and do anything to do it. Um, but, but that's what's going on on earth while in heaven 
uh, everything is going to be all about our wedding to Jesus. And it it really is a celebration. And when we, we think about this, the wedding clothes, the fine white linen of the saints, um, all of that is symbolic. It speaks of righteousness. Uh, we're we're going to go be with Jesus where uh, there is nothing bad, only only that which is beautiful. And um, there'll be no more sorrow, no more tears. It's just nothing but pure, unadulterated joy for the rest of our lives. And it begins... And then at that moment, at the end of the seven years, remember, there's no time in heaven, but there's time according to the earth. When that seven years is up in heaven and Jesus is coming back, he's simply going to say to us, come with me, and we're going to return to earth with him. And he is going to, uh, once and for all, destroy those who are his enemies and establish his kingdom, of which you and I, Cindy, will be uh, an integral part. Um, what we'll be doing and how we'll be doing it, even where we'll be doing it. Um, we don't have detail, but we will be serving with Jesus. We will be um, um, judging. Um, uh, we'll be instruments through whom he manifests judgment. Again, we don't know what all of that means or what it's exactly going to look like, but what we do know is it's going to be magnificent. So we will be married um, to Jesus when we see him and then the wedding banquet, the celebration. Oh, what a party that will be and not like an earthly party, but but it will be a party. Um, I can almost sense the relief coming uh, out of my body just thinking about it when there's no more stress, no more pressure, nothing to make us cry, nothing to make us sad, no evil thoughts, no temptation, all of that, Cindy, is a part of the old order of things. And we're going to step out of this world into a completely new order of things. Now, that's going to happen uh, for those of us who die before the rapture. That's going to happen the minute we stand face-to-face with Jesus. Um, the the rest of us who will be raptured, um, um, who don't face death, Paul said not everyone is going to die. Um, well, when that happens... It will be a relief. Jesus said that we should pray that we would be counted worthy to escape the great tribulation. And um, I'm I'm okay with that. So that's what it's going to be like, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. Good to hear from you again. Here is a question from another anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I really struggle with anger. I repent, but it always comes back. Will God ever change me? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do, Anonymous. I'm going to ask you to to, to really, really, really try to believe what the Bible says. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What that means is simply that he has already delivered you from anger. Now, He's probably wondering, now I'm using human language because God knows everything, but from our perspective we think, well, God is probably wondering if I'm ever going to let him change me. But see, we have to believe what's been written. You struggle with anger because your flesh is in control. You struggle with anger because anger in sort of a perverse fashion feels good. You struggle with anger because your focus is on you and not on Jesus, and certainly not on the people that he loves. And when you say you repent, but it always comes back, I would really challenge you to examine your heart here. Because repentance means you turn around and walk in the other direction. It means you, you're going the opposite way of angry. So now we know what anger feels like. This is an easy one because we, we all get angry. And so the choice has to be made when the anger comes, are you going to give in to it? Or are you going to, by faith, take control of it? Paul tells the Corinthians to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So when you feel anger beginning to well up, you've got to remember, no, no, no. If I sin in my anger, I'm embarrassing Jesus. I'm embarrassing me. I'm misrepresenting him. And I say, I love him. He said, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Lord, I want to rightly represent you. I want to prove that I really love you more than I love me. 
So I'm not going to give in to this. And whatever you have to do, Anonymous, that's what you do. You take a walk, you open the Bible. But, but these habits that we have are all flesh being in control. I'll give you a homework assignment. Read Romans chapter 8. It's about life in the Spirit. And if you will read Romans chapter 8, if you will believe the promises that are made to you, if God is for you, who can be against you? The overcomer promises there are, are just wonderful. Um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So just the promises in that one chapter alone, if you really believe them, you'll understand that you've already been delivered. It seems by the wording in your question that you're just sort of sitting back, waiting for God to take the anger away from you. You're a human with emotions. There's an enemy who hates that you're in, in, in on Jesus' side, and so he's going to be pounding you with, with, with thoughts and, and temptation. So here's what you've got to remember is I'm already dif- different. I'm already changed. And Jesus, I want to be with you. I can promise you this, Anonymous. I say all the time, uh, whether it's here or at church, I just say, just be with Jesus. I promise you when you're with Jesus, uh, you will not give in to your anger. When you tell Jesus, go away, and you're hanging out with yourself, you're going to give in to the anger. In your flesh is nothing good. Same as in mine. That's what Paul says is true for all of us. So what we've got to decide is, I don't want to be that person anymore. But just to wait for Jesus to take it, instead of you saying, Jesus, here it is. Every time you start to get angry, say, Jesus, I give it to you. I'm not going to respond as I always have in the past. I'm going to be different. And when you're with Jesus, you've got the power that raised Christ from the dead living in you. That's the power that can overcome your anger. So don't think that it's going to go away. But you've got a greater power in you to send it away. Now, I've got the same emotions as you do. Um... I've shared this before. When I got saved, I had a foul, foul mouth. Um, I was selfish. I was a jerk. Um, But when I met Jesus, I realized, well, I can't do that anymore. I don't know what I am going to do, but I can't do that anymore. And um, so I would have to stop myself. Say, Jesus, I don't want to embarrass you. That's what you need to do. Think about the consequences from your anger. When you say, I really struggle with anger, think about the, the horrible consequences. Think about the, the, and again, I don't know who you are, but, but if you're married and have children, think about what your children have heard you say. The things they've watched you struggle with. you got to decide, I'm simply not going to do that anymore because that embarrasses Jesus. I don't want to embarrass him. I want my faith to be real, to be genuine. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Um, God's already taken it away. All you got to do is believe him. Uh, Raphael asks, how do we get very vivid dreams interpreted? Um, Raphael, I don't, I'm not a dream interpretation guy. I think if God gives you a dream, he wants you to know what it means. And at just the right time, he will tell you what it means if you seek him in prayer. It's that simple. Um, I think most of our vivid dreams, now I, I, I want to say this, just I'm coming from a place where I experience this myself. I am a very vivid dreamer and um, um, a lot of my dreams are really, really super evil. Horrible attacks, I'm getting beat, I'm getting shot, I'm in airplanes that are crashing, just horrible, horrible things. And what I do is I wake up and I just say, okay, Lord. Uh, I know that dream wasn't from you. If you sent me a dream, it would be a dream of correction or it would be a dream of encouragement or exhortation. Um, So I know that dream's not from you. Just help me just to forget it. And Lord, I want to dream about you. And I try to get back to sleep. Once in a while, Raphael, I'll have a dream that I feel is different than those dreams that it is from the Lord. And and, and if, if he doesn't give me the interpretation right away, uh, I just tell him, okay, Lord, I'm gonna I'm gonna file this away, and if this is a dream I need to know the meaning of, 
I'm going to trust that you are going to tell me what the meaning is at just the right time. I think, Raphael, too many of us, we think all of our dreams are from God or they all have significance. And honestly, if you've done any of the research uh, about dreams, uh, we, we are dreaming all night, every night. And um, the ones that we remember uh, usually are more dreams that are embedded in our subconscious or or caused by things that we've seen or heard or things that we're stressing over. And most of them are just dreams. And I think it's really important that you can get to that place by faith where you can say, Lord, uh, I'm sure that dream isn't from you. But if it is, I'm going to wait on you to tell me. Let me also say this, and this is not just to Raphael, this is to everybody. The idea that all our dreams have to be interpreted, they all have to mean something, is really just superstition. Uh, I think in, in a lot of cases it's the enemy of our souls. And I, I certainly don't think that we should be troubling other people with dreams. Now, I've got a couple of ladies here at Calvary Chapel who um, are dreamers themselves uh, and also have been have demonstrated they have the gift of interpreting dreams. But I think it's a very unique gift. And both of these ladies that I'm thinking of at the top of my head both of them have demonstrated to me over the years that if, if, if I have something that's just sort of bothering me, I can run it by them and ask them to pray about it because they've demonstrated that they're faithful. They've demonstrated by the, the way they live their lives that, um, that they can be trusted, that their heart is in the right place. And, and at no point would either of those ladies uh, get upset with me if I didn't believe, if I said, well, I'm not, I just don't think that's it. They, they, would, they, they don't take any ownership of it. So I, I just, I don't think we ought to seek an interpretation. It's one of those things where we say, okay, Lord, I trust you. If you, if this dream is from you, you want me to know what it means, and I'm going to keep seeking you and Lord at just the right time. I know you'll tell me what the dream means. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I'm I'm laughing because I'm reading a question. It is an anonymous one. And it says this. Uh, and it's, it's directed to me personally. Uh, I assume you do pretty well financially. Why don't pastors give their money away to the poor as Jesus instructed? That would show they really do have God's heart. Uh, Anonymous, I'm going to say, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to say a couple of things first. One, you're really judgy. You don't know me. I live very, very modestly. Um, I come from a background before Christ where I made a lot of money. Uh, Paul and I were very wealthy. We had more money than we knew how to spend, and I yet managed to squander it all away in my sin, um, but you don't know me. Why would you assume that I do pretty well financially? Uh, I can tell you I take a very, very small amount of money from our church. Um, a very small amount of money. Um, God takes care of me. We don't have debt. Um, and so so um, uh, I'm, I'm fine. We're comfortable. But we live... Um, very, very modestly. As to why don't pastors give their money away to the poor as Jesus instructed, let me ask you this question. Why don't you give your money away? Jesus' instructions were for everybody, not just for you. Now, to think that Jesus told us we have to give our money away because he told that to the rich young ruler is to miss the point. The rich young ruler's heart was controlled by his money. And Jesus was trying to free him from that kind of bondage. But you see, the truth is, why would you expect a pastor to live a way that you're not living? It's frustrating to me with the, uh, it would show they really do have God's heart. Your question seems to me like it shows that you don't really have God's heart. Should pastors get paid? Of course they should. We got bills. Is it true that some pastors take real advantage 
of the churches they serve and take way, way, way too much money fleecing the flock? Yes, that's true. But see, those are the pastors that you need to pray for instead of judge. Pray for them. And before you talk about what anybody does with their money, you should be going before the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, what am I doing with my money? It belongs to you. You know, our church, Anonymous, does everything for free. Everything. Uh, We have a free school. We have a free family practice doctor's office. Nobody pays money. We don't even take insurance. Uh, We have a place where we can let people who are really struggling live for free, especially it's it's for women um, uh, called Mena House. Um, And we wouldn't consider charging anybody for that. So I just, your, your, your focus is all wrong. Look in instead of looking out. And, and, and please don't judge other people, especially when you don't know anything about them. I think it's safe for me to say, you know, we, get, we have so many new people coming all the time that they wouldn't know. But, but I, I'd show anybody who asks me how much I make. I'd be happy to do that. We have an annual business meeting uh, every February. It's the last Sunday in February every year. And uh, while I don't reveal what all of the pastors on staff make, um, um, I reveal exactly what I make to the people who are interested enough to come. So all I can say is Jesus takes care of me. I love my life. But um, I would doubt that you could live on the money that I take out of here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And uh, I, I think it's really unfair that you would think that I'd have to give all my money away in order to show that I have God's heart. So that's enough, Anonymous. Thank you for at least having the uh, courage to ask the question. Here's a question from Raymond. You can tell that question bothered me. Uh, here's a question from Raymond. Pastor Ron, please explain the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Thank you. Um, Raymond, there, there are two completely separate events. The rapture of the church is Jesus calling his church to himself. Not Jesus coming for his church, but calling his church to himself. And the Bible says he will meet us in the air. So he's in heaven We're here. He calls us to come to him, and he meets us in the air and then takes us to um, the wedding banquet that Cindy was talking about. The second coming is a completely different thing. It happens roughly seven years after the rapture. And uh, the second coming is simply Jesus returning to earth to establish his kingdom. Now, when he establishes his kingdom, that involves judgment. He's going to destroy his enemies, and he's going to establish a kingdom that will be perfect in justice, uh, perfect in judgment, perfect righteousness. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, in order to do that, he's got to judge sin. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 is where you can read about that moment when he comes. But that's what the second coming is. Um, The rapture is taking us away from the place where the wrath of God is going to be poured out. The second coming is that moment when the wrath of God finds its completion and the world is judged. So, Raymond, I hope that makes sense to you. There's only one coming yet to come, Jesus to earth, and that's the second coming when he comes to establish his kingdom. Time for maybe one more. Uh, Millie wants to know, do you think that you can be a moral person if you're not a Christian? Certainly, Millie. um, uh, I know unbelievers who are really good people. They've got a really strong ethic. Uh, They are men and women of integrity. Um, um, And as the world judges morality, uh, we would say they're, they're, they're good people. They're moral people. They're upright people. The problem is, is that doesn't get him to heaven. Because in order to get to heaven, you have to be a perfect person. And of course, since we can't be, Jesus 
was for us and gave us his perfection or his righteousness. But yes, there are a lot of people who have nothing to do with Jesus who tell the truth. Um, they may be wrong about a lot of things, but they, they, they're, they're, they're men and women of integrity. Um, and yeah, the problem is, again, they're going to stand before the Lord and they're going to be judged. And being a man or woman of integrity isn't how we get to heaven. We can only get to heaven by being sinless, without sin. And only Jesus can do that. So that's really, really important for us to understand. But it is silly for Christians to believe that unbelievers can't be good moral people who tell the truth or keep their word, because there are. I know unbelievers who who would put to shame a lot of the Christians I know when it comes to being men and women of integrity or keeping your promises um, um, or, or, or just being direct and honest with people. So, yes, I think that you can be a moral person, even if you're not a Christian. It's just that if you're not a Christian, why would you even want to be moral? If you're not a Christian, Paul says to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I think that's the thing that we really need to understand, Millie. Heaven is not about being good or doing good. Heaven is about being perfect, and only Jesus makes that possible. Read Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. The whole chapter, the last verse says, and this is the summary, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the only way we get to heaven. Thank you, Millie. Thanks for the questions today and the calls. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. Go to church to serve someone else. Let God pour out His Spirit upon you and through you to others, and it will change your experience forever. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Word to stand on.